When we consider the sovereignty of God, uh, as we read in Psalm 135 at the beginning of this service, we learn that whether we believe it or not, he is in complete control of everything. He is king and Lord, ruler over all. When the believer in Christ considers the sovereignty of God, as we did in reading Matthew 6, we are reminded that his sovereignty means that he will take care of every one of our needs. He feeds the birds, he clothes the flowers, and he will care for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? These are truths that we know and rejoice in, yet stumble in believing at times. Today's passage provides a visual reminder of another area of God's sovereignty, namely that the Lord will build his church when he wants, how he wants, and by his authority alone. We see the apostles beginning to grasp that reality in today's passage. The church of Jesus Christ will be built on his terms in his time by the means that he chooses. This theme is going to be repeated throughout Acts, throughout Scripture. And what a comfort it ought to be to us who have believed. To we who labor in his name that we do not build the church. We do not change hearts. We are called to faithfulness, obedience, and trusting the Lord to do what only he can do. That was a foundational principle right from the start of the church. In today's passage, we find the apostles doing, remarkably at times, doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Exactly what he said before he ascended. Until the triune God would do what only he could do, what were they supposed to be doing? Waiting. So to set the scene for us, as Chuck read, the apostles have come back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Lots we could say about the Mount of Olives in Scripture. We see it in Zechariah as a place of judgment of the Lord on Israel. We see it in Jesus' words. He, he gives the Olivet Discourse where he talks about the end of all things. Here it was the place where he ascended to the Father. They're coming back from the Mount of Olives. They make a Sabbath day's journey, Luke records, about seven-tenths of a mile or so. A, play, a distance that was allowable to walk on the Sabbath and there they are in the upper room. Is this the same upper room that they celebrated the Lord's Supper in? What do you think? I got a profound answer. I don't know. Uh, poten potentially. Yes, that's correct. Potentially. If so, they've been staying there a long time. Like they, this, this host is very gracious. We're, we're on like day 50 of this visit. Uh, well, day, actually, we're near day 40, to be honest. Uh, so, it, it's a big upper room. They've been there possibly a long time, or it could be somebody else's upper room. It really doesn't matter. But already we see 120 people gathered. The beginnings of the church. And did you take notice? 
either in, in when Chuck was reading or maybe you read this passage this week, did you take notice of any of the specific people who were mentioned in the upper room? One that stands out to me as I read this passage. We see in verse 14 that Mary is there, but who else is there with Mary? Jesus' brothers. Quite possibly his sisters as well. When Jesus walked the earth, were his brothers believers? They thought he was crazy. They thought he was crazy, but here we see them 40 days later, or like, let's say 38 days later, among the gathered group in the upper room. Not only that, but his brothers James and Jude are going to become pillars in the early church. I'm always struck when I, when I read the book of Jude. You know how the, the book of Jude starts? These are the words. Jude, this is one of Jesus' brothers who thought he was crazy, who tried to rescue him from himself on multiple occasions. The book of Jude starts, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That's amazing. Kids, do you ever refer to yourself as the servant of your brother or sister? I did ask for it, I know. And it was undoubted who was going to reply the loudest. Uh, Jude, who thought Jesus was nuts, now refers to himself as a servant of Jesus. Forty days. What changed in those days? What happened? What do you think? Yeah, he saw his brother alive again. And this, this group that's gathered stands as evidence of the truth of the gospel. These siblings who were so opposed to Jesus' claims now gather in the upper room as his followers just a few weeks later. And what a testament to the mercy of God. Jesus had every right to come back and go back to his family and all the power that he had, he could have used that to show them how foolish they were for rejecting him, how foolish they were for disbelieving and saying, now you are sentenced to an eternity in hell wondering why you never believed. But instead, he showed himself to them. And he opened their eyes to the gospel. And so as they are gathered in the upper room, today's passage shows us that they entrusted themselves to the sovereign hand of God. This 120 that gathered. The words of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 12 came to mind. We do not know what to do. You know what the second half of that verse is? but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
We too are called to submit our lives and our ministries to the sovereign will and guiding hand of God. With the rest of our time this morning, I want to look in this passage at three ways that we see submission to the sovereign will and guiding hand of God. Uh, And the three handles I'll use are the waiting, the word, and the one. The waiting, the word, and the one. So the waiting. The people are gathered. And in verse 14, we find them doing what you told me they were doing earlier. With one accord, they are devoting themselves to prayer. They are waiting on God. This aspect in verse 14 where it says all these with one accord. This is going to be a repeated theme in the book of Acts. One accord. That they were one. That there was a unity that was born out in them and among them. The Holy Spirit would build a community of like-minded believers who would live in accord with one another. There would be a unity that was inexplicable apart from the grace of God. A unity that involved sacrifice and service and love and care. And here they are unified in praying, which was emblematic of the fact that they were waiting. Jesus had told them in 1-4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. To wait. The Holy Spirit would baptize them. They were obeying. They were prayerful. They were watchful. They were waiting. They were not to try and run on ahead and figure out what to do. As they had been prone to do many times. Come up with my own plan. They were not to run on ahead. They were to wait. This is a very common theme in scriptures. Do you have your Bibles out? We're going to run through a few verses real quick. Psalm 27. Keep your finger in the Acts passage, but Psalm 27, well, unless you're using a a device, then it's hard to put your finger in there. Uh, Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait. For the Lord. Flip back a page. Psalm 25. I actually was just reading Psalm 25 this morning. Verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. None who wait for you will be put to shame. Psalm 62. Verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. Isaiah chapter 40. I suspect that this verse might be hanging in somebody's home, some of your homes. Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 31. I'll go 30 and 31. 
Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Romans 8.23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We wait. One more. First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10. I'll read, yeah, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you did a study in scripture of, of how frequently the term wait, keep watch, is, is brought up. You, you would be astounded. Maybe you have done that. The call to wait on the Lord to answer. The call on the wait to wait on the Lord to return. The call to wait on the Lord over and over and over again. And in the words of great Christian philosopher Thomas Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. What is it that we model when we wait on the Lord? When we seek Him for answers, when we call out to Him in prayer and then wait, it acknowledges that we trust in Him and that He is sovereign over all and that we cannot make it happen. We need Him. Do you believe that? We need His. There are things that we want done some of which he calls us to just go and do. There are other things we want done that he says, you can't do that. You must wait on me. It's easy to run on ahead. We live in the world of instant gratification, don't we? We hear news that's an hour old and we're like, why are they even still reporting this stuff? I, I knew that an hour ago. What's new? Tell me something else. Tell me some other piece of information. We are all about instant gratification. What's new? What's next? Give me, give me. It's easy for us as individuals and us as a church, as the church, to want to make something happen. Make it happen fast. Make it look like something's happening. Make it look like something's stirring in somebody's heart. Wishing the Lord's work would happen in short order. When we wait on the Lord, we say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We need you to work, Lord. We need you to answer. There are situations in our lives Maybe there are some, I, I know there are some out here. I know you. I know you pretty well, some of you. 
There are things in your lives that you're saying, I've been praying about this for years. And it hasn't happened yet. And I haven't gotten the answer that I was hoping for yet. Maybe I need to make something happen. And the Lord's call may be to wait and remain watchful in prayer. And trust in his sovereign hand. And his sovereign care. And trust that he knows better. And trust that he knows best. And trust that he is working for the good of his children. Even when we don't see it or understand it. And maybe he says, yes, you've been praying for 30 years. Pray for 40. Pray for 50. This is not an excuse for laziness or fearfulness, but there are areas, just like the apostles had here in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, there are areas of our lives where the Lord is just saying, pray. Watch and pray. And keep doing that. And trust that I know best. Can he be trusted in those things? Where is he calling you or us as a church to that today? The apostles would lead the gathered faithful in waiting on the Lord. Not return. It's interesting because post-crucifixion, what did the disciples do? They kind of went back to life as it was, right? You see them returning to their, their workplaces, some of them. They're, they're oh, okay, he died. I guess that's it. But post-resurrection and post-ascension, that's not what they do. We find them going exactly where he told them to go and waiting. Knowing that something was going to happen even if they didn't understand what or when. Not returning to their ways of living before Jesus turned the world upside down. Not coming up with a scheme of their own making to, uh, a scheme of their own making to tell the world about Jesus. They were waiting. Something was going to happen. Something would propel them out, but they were not going to manufacture it. They were to wait. And in that they acknowledged who was the Lord of the church. We also see in the middle of today's passage the sovereign hand of the Lord in the ministry of the word. Are you back in Acts now? Got your Bibles open, Acts? We see in the middle of today's passage the sovereign hand of the Lord in the ministry of the Word. Who has taken the lead in the infant church? Peter. You knew it had to be, right? Peter. And here he helps the 120 who are gathered to understand the fullness of the truth of the Old Testament. Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And what's he say, what's he say after that? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness of me. While many Jews clearly did not believe that Jesus was the specific fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, it's good for us to understand that Jewish people did believe that a larger fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures would come. A son of David who would fulfill the scriptures completely. 
Yes, the events of the Old Testament were real events that happened in real time, but a greater fulfillment was yet to come. This shapes how we should read the scriptures as well. I think Peter is giving us a little bit of a lesson on how to view the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, the historical narratives in the Old Testament really happened. And they were real shadows at the same time of a greater fulfillment yet to come. An example that, that was in my life this week. I, I did a, do a men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings. And then this Tuesday we were reading Genesis chapter 22. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. Did that really happen? Did that account really happen? Yes. That really happened. It's a crazy story. Abraham is asked to offer his son. And then God, in some ways, twists the knife a little bit by saying, I want you to offer your son, your only son, whom you love. As a sacrifice to God. And, he go, and he's obedient. He goes up. To offer his son as a sacrifice. This really happened. And the Lord really did bless his obedience. But we are also meant as we read that passage. To be driven to ask the question. Who on earth would sacrifice his son? Well, the Lord would sacrifice his son. And while Abraham's son. A substitute was provided. The Lord was going to provide his son as the substitute. As the greater fulfillment of the life of Abraham and Isaac. But I digress. Now, I'm not sure how many of you read this passage before today. But whether it was this week or some other time you've studied the book of Acts. Maybe you've cross-referenced the Psalms that Peter quotes here. In verses, uh, I should have wrote the verses down. 20, it's both in verse 20. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. These are two quotations of Psalms. Psalm 69 and 109. And maybe if you've read those Psalms in context, you've said, how does Peter get away with using those verses to talk about Judas? What's that even mean? How, how does that fit? But it gives us a window into how Jewish people viewed the Old Testament. Real truths that waited for greater fulfillment in the life of the Messiah. We should view the scriptures in the same way. All of the scriptures are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. I wish I had time to dive deeper into that. I'd love to talk with anybody who has questions about that after the service. And we're going to get to the specific verses and their display of the sovereignty of God. But just briefly, I want to say uh, that in 116, look here in 116, Peter says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In Acts 1.16, we get Peter sharing his view and our view as a church. The orthodox view that the scriptures are written by whom? By God. He says, through the Holy Spirit, right? 
by the mouth of David. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. The idea that God breathed and spoke his word through human authors. But because it is the word of God, it is without error. Without any error. And here Peter affirms that of the Old Testament. Every word and every part of scripture is spirit inspired, God breathed and penned by human authors. Without error because it's ultimately from God himself. If we say there is error, we are saying that God makes errors. God makes mistakes. And God forbid we would say that. What Peter, Peter also affirms, more pertinent to today's theme and text, is that the selection of Judas was not an accident. It was the sovereign will of God that Judas be one of the twelve. Jesus says in John chapter 6, so this is not at the end of his ministry, but in the midst of his ministry, Jesus says, did I not choose you, did I not choose you 12? And what's the next part that he says? You got, I'm, I'm not going until you tell me. <laughs> did not I choose you the 12? One of you is a devil. Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas' presence was no accident. It was part of God's sovereign plan. His betrayal was not an oopsie. It was orchestrated. Judas was guilty this is not God's fault. Judas was guilty, but God was not surprised. Peter tells the 120 in today's passage that the scriptures foretold that it had to be this way. It had to be this way. In a world broken by sin, fallen under a curse because of human rebellion against our maker, even the greatest horrors are not outside the sovereign hand of God. Do you know that? Even the greatest horrors are not outside the sovereign hand of God. He is not the author of sin by any means. Wicked people do wicked acts. But as he hands people over to, to do whatever their sinful hearts please, whatever comes to mind in their hearts, whatever they desire, and as Satan expresses whatever measure of authority he possesses in this world, even in this, the Lord rules and reigns. Even in this. Satan believes that he is in charge. Judas believed that he was in charge. You know what they were? Servants to the sovereign plan of God. Who was in charge? The one who was handed over. The one that was getting handed over by Judas was the one in charge of the whole scene. They were accomplishing his purposes. Quick question as we read, what actually happened to Judas? Do you notice in this passage, what's it say happened to Judas? Yeah, it sounds like he exploded, right? He fell 
and his bowels gushed out. Beautiful picture. So did that really happen or did he hang himself? Yes. Correct. Yes. Most likely, he hung himself and quite possibly remained where he was. Maybe as a pointer to the sad state of affairs of a man like that. And ultimately, probably fell and was ripped open or possibly eaten open by animals. Did Judas buy that field? Right? We talk, we talk like the Bible's without error. Are there contradictions in the Bible? Did Judas buy that field? It says he did. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. I think the answer is pretty simple. They used his money to acquire the field. It was his money that bought that field. Would have been known. It was his money. This was the betrayal money. Remember, the, the Jewish leaders say, well, what are we going to do with that? It's blood money. Can't do anything with that. Hypocrites. So Judas, his money was used to buy that field, and he remained hanging until he fell and his body burst open. But back to the main point. The bottom line here is that the life and selection of Judas were not an accident. They were a fulfillment. They were a part of God's sovereign plan. Judas was God's means of bringing about the death of Jesus. Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, Peter says. But his efforts brought about the salvation of many. Judas was completely guilty, but his wickedness was used for the good of the world. Have you considered the sovereign hand of God in your story of salvation? Have you considered how he orchestrated the times and events that brought you to the moment where you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I know some of you have. I see some of you smiling. That he got you to where he needed you to be, to the moment he needed you to be, to hear the word and believe whether that's being raised in the church or brought to an event or a crazy set of circumstances, living a life of rebellion. We're all living a life of rebellion, whatever it looked like. And he got you exactly where you needed to be to hear the word and believe. And he gave you the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And he changed your heart so we can see even in the life of Judas... Oh, he didn't foil the plans of God. He accomplished the plans of God. He did what the Lord needed done to bring about the salvation of many. If you're here today and not believing in Jesus, would you consider for just a moment that the Lord may have brought you here today to be confronted with the reality that he rules and reigns over all? There are no accidents. And whether you acknowledge it or not, one day you will have to give an account to him for the life you have lived in his world. He has every right to demand it of you. 
And if you are found lacking, if you are found living in any way that is for anything other than the glory of God, even for a moment in your life, I think we all know whether we have been found lacking. You are worthy of eternal death. He is the one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And those who do not glorify him are worthy of eternal damnation. But in his sovereign love and mercy, he orchestrated the events of history in such a way that Judas would hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. And this would lead to his death, a death that was a sacrifice to atone for our sin. God's sovereign plan included a plan to rescue those who don't even give a rip about him. People he made. He made you. You don't care. He can do whatever he wants with you and you don't care. And still, he beckons you in love and maybe brought you here today that you could hear and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, handed over by Judas, by the sovereign plan of God for the salvation of many. No wicked plot can thwart the will of God. No wicked plot exists outside the will of God. Brothers and sisters, every pain you suffer, every trial you endure, every wickedness you face, all of it falls under the sovereign hand and care of God. Now, for some of us, that might feel like, I don't know if that's comforting. I don't, is that comforting to me? Because that means what? If everything that I face falls under his sovereign hand, what does it mean? Even my trials, even my pains, he could change it, couldn't he? Sometimes he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? What's your answer to that question? So that we can learn to trust him. His plans are bigger than our heads can contain. What if I told you he doesn't change it because he loves you? And that he knows what's the most loving thing for every single moment of your life that you live. Because sometimes he doesn't change it. That doesn't mean he's less good or less sovereign. I mean, Jesus walked side by side with Judas every day of his life, or his ministry, his ministry life. He knew the whole time. He chose him, knowing this is going to be the guy who one day is going to hand me over. And that handing me over is going to put me in a place where I'm going to be nailed to a cross. And I'm going to be nailed to a cross bearing the sins of the world. I am going to be facing forsakenness from the Father. Oh, and by the way, this was our plan from all of eternity. We can trust his plan we can trust even what makes no sense to us, knowing that he loves us. 
So we had the waiting. The, the last one is going to be quick, I promise. The waiting, the word, and the one. We see the sovereign hand of God in their waiting. We see the sovereign hand of God in the word. And we see uh, the sovereign hand of God in the one. The absence of Judas left the team a man short. They were down a man. And so they must replace Judas. I have a few questions. First of all, did they have to replace Judas? I see some people saying, yes, I agree. They did have to replace Judas. Why? Couldn't they just move on with 11? God can't do it with 11. He needs 12. What's the deal with that? We're reminded that the apostles, the 12 apostles were meant to be the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. They would be the pillars upon which the church was built. We see in Revelation chapter 21, right? Well, we can look. I don't have to just tell you about it. It's there. Revelation chapter 21, at the end of all things. I say 21? Yeah, 21, 14. Describing the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, right? John sees, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. These 12 were meant to be the fulfillment of the nation of Israel, doing what Israel had failed to do, but through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, these 12 would not fail at accomplishing the mission of God. Judas had turned aside to go to his own place, and now one would be chosen to fill his role. This was an acknowledgement that the first holder of the office failed, as the nation of Israel had failed. Did Judas fail because he died? No. He failed because he was apostate, because he, he walked away from the faith, and so he needed to be replaced. Second, why did the, the one they picked have to meet all the criteria? Verses 21 and 22. Let's read it. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Why did that have to be? Why was that the criteria? Somebody who was with him the whole time. Pretty simple, right? So that they'd be a credible witness. They saw everything. They saw it all. From the beginning to the end, this brother had to have been with them throughout the ministry of Jesus, from his baptism to his ascension, and he needed to be able to testify to all of it firsthand. Two in their midst meet the description, Joseph and Matthias. So my third and final question about this is why did they cast lots? Why did they cast lots? Well, this gets us back to the theme of the passage and the theme of today's service. Peter says it himself. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. This is verse 24. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Who chose the first 12? Who was going to choose number 13? 
He was going to be the one who chooses. We, we talked about it last week in the beginning of Acts 1, where Luke says, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that in this book, the book of Acts, he was going to talk about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. And here we see the apostles saying, this is not our decision to make. Lord, this is your decision to make. We have two possible candidates, and we are reminded of Proverbs 16.33 that says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Amen. They cast lots. For the sake of time, let's consider it like rolling dice. Not dice stacking, rolling. Dice rolling. They had two people who met their criteria, and instead of the group trying to make a decision, instead of them coming up with the answer, they cast their lots as an acknowledgement that the Lord sovereignly chooses whom he will. He had chosen his 12, and he would choose number 13. They were ready to accept whatever decision came from the hand of the Lord, and the lot falls to Matthias. The team was ready for what was about to take place. Should we cast lots? That's what our, all our elders meetings, we just throw out like we got three ideas. Boom. I, I, I see some of the elders. They're like, huh. Why haven't we, why haven't we decided this? It's just all we do. We've got a few good ideas, cast some lots. Listen, I would say generally, generally no. We're... we're Trust, entrusting ourselves to the revealed will of God. But is there possibly a scenario where that might be a viable option? Sure. I could see it. I could see it, but it would have to meet the criteria laid forth in Scripture, not just like, we don't feel like making a decision. Let's throw some dice. As we come to a close this morning, brothers and sisters, we too can take joy in submitting ourselves to a sovereign father. We can wait on him and find strength. We can see his word as rock-solid truth that keeps our eyes set on the one sovereignly sent, the Lord Jesus. We can entrust all of our days and all of our decisions to his loving and sovereign hand. Nothing will succeed without his power. The apostles knew it. They believed it. It's every bit as true now as it was then. Nothing will be of value apart from his work and his acting and his power supplying all that we need. Let's entrust ourselves to him. Let's pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you rule and reign over all. We thank you that you are in control of all, that you know all things. And we thank you that you love us. And so, Father, I pray that we as a church, we as individuals would commend ourselves to the loving hands and sovereign care of our good Heavenly Father. You build your church, Lord. You do your work in our hearts. You have your way with us. And when we don't understand what is happening or when things seem to be happening slower than we would like or not the way we would like, remind us of your great goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.